This is Amy Poehler. My new movie, Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2, is coming to theaters June 14th, and it's making me feel joy and sadness and anger. Definitely some disgust. Rose! And I think a little fear. But I'm also feeling these new emotions like anxiety, embarrassment, envy, and ennui. It's what you call the boredom. Okay, that one was weird. It's going to be the feel-everything movie of the summer. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters June 14. Get tickets now. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to Slate's Audio Book Club. I'm June Thomas. Today, our book club members are discussing Charles Bock's new novel, Beautiful Children. To introduce the conversation, here's Stephen Metcalf. Hello, and welcome to Slate's Audio Book Club. I'm Stephen Metcalf, Slate's critic at large. I'm joined this morning by Katie Royfe, author most recently of Uncommon Arrangements and a teacher slash professor at NYU. Katie, welcome. Thank you. And by, we're also joined by Troy Patterson, who is the television critic for Slate. Troy, I believe this is your first audiobook club, and you've asked us to be gentle with you this morning. Please do. We will, we'll, we'll try. We'll try. Charles Bach is now 38 years old, which, depending on your point of view, is either young or old. He did take 11 years to produce his first novel, Beautiful Children, which draws upon his experience as a child of Las Vegas, specifically a child of a couple who were pawnbrokers, and he saw the squalor and degradation of Las Vegas as a matter of daily routine growing up in the shadow of the casinos. His book is big, it's long, it's sprawling. It has been considered an important debut, we should say, by the New York Times, which treated it three times over, I think once extremely enthusiastically, once fairly enthusiastically, and once with some reservations. I thought maybe before we got into our discussion, I would give people who haven't read it or haven't read it recently a taste of the flavor of the book it's it's a very flavorful it's a powerful you know sort of powerfully written book and uh, i thought i'd start with an early passage there's a character named bing much of the book is taken up with the kind of young adolescent male imagination and how overcrowded it is with video games and violence and comic books and bing is now i believe in his early 20s he's a comic book artist of very little renown he goes on these kind of slightly pathetic book tours the most recent of which lands him in Las Vegas. There's a long section describing Bing's sort of, what would you call it, his Kunstler Roman or something, the the story of his development as a would-be comic book artist. This is on page 16. He collected every comic under the X-Men umbrella, purchasing duplicate copies, one to read, one for posterity. He religiously updated his library of science fiction and pulp novels with the latest installments of each series, no matter how sloppy and half-assed each successive volume may have been. He constantly referenced the dialogue of sitcoms he'd memorized during afternoons of syndicated reruns, shows that hadn't been all that funny the first time he'd seen them, being inhaled kung fu videos and pay-per-view wrestling extravaganzas until vicarious testosterone all but burst through his flabby arms. Then he headed out and played old-school stand-up arcade games until skill allowed him to stretch a quarter for like a week. On a daily basis for three consecutive months, in an infamous phase whose mere recollection to this day still caused him physical pain, Bing Biterbix had donned a cape. Biterbix the misguided, Bing the misunderstood, the listless fat kid who could get only as close to a naked woman as the nearest Sports Illustrated swimsuit issue, Maxim subscription, or Cinemax's Max After Dark episode would allow. Uh, and let me just give a very quick plot summary of the book. The book essentially has two main plot threads, as, as I recall it. There's the, it follows a young sort of pre-adolescent 
boy who may be sort of normally fucked up or he might be sociopathic. He's at exactly that age where it's impossible to tell this of young boys. And it follows him during the night of his eventual disappearance, which we know about because then the book toggles back to its other main story, which is the story of his parents, Lincoln Ewing and Lorraine Ewing, whose marriage is eroding in the fa- and lives are really falling apart in the face of this, of their child's absence. Katie, what do we make of this book? It, it has been, it's certainly an event book, I think, and it's brought uh, an enormous amount of renown to the author, Charles Bach. What did you What did you make of it? Well, something you said actually struck me, and that is, I think, uh, sentence by sentence, the writing is often interesting, compelling. The characters in Las Vegas are sort of vivid and extreme and cartoonish and all these runaways and this sort of adolescent fantasy of what it's like when you disappear into the desert is kind of compelling. But when you said, um, as I recall, that actually made me think about something, which is, you know, I read this book very carefully a couple of weeks ago, and it really doesn't stay Yeah, in I read mind. it, I should say, about three weeks ago. I, and yeah. with most books, you would have a much more vivid impression of it. And the fact that you're not recalling every detail of it or that it doesn't make such an impression is, tells you something about this book, which I think is that it has the effect of a sort of mediocre movie mm. where while you were watching it, you were kind of interested for a while, um, it kind of page turnery. I was very interested in reading it, but it really didn't stay in my mind even the next day. Mm. Troy, what do you think? The effect of a mediocre movie? It's definitely interested in the language of cinema in that way and in a mediocre movie language. I can't give it as much credit as Katie does on the sentence level. I find it that it continually slips into this ready-made language of cliché and ready-made phrases, in a way that's, that can be kind of exciting and apt, in much the same way that, say, Michael Chabon in The Amazing Adventures of Cavalier and Clay came up with a, a comic book style to tell the story of two guys creating a comic book. There's, there's something about the language here and the way that it's low and colloquial and slangy and mm-hmm. porny and lurid and you know, video game-ish that uh, certainly does justice to the subject. I think there's a distinction, however, between someone like Chabon, who's sort of lifts the material at, out of the the mundane realm to something a little more like pop art, I think Charles Bach can too often sort of wallow in this kind of lazy language. And there are many phrases that feel more appropriate to a telephone conversation than to a literary novel. And I feel them all the more acutely because they're, they're juxtaposed with these, the hardworking, overworked language that maybe James Wood would identify as hysterical realism or B.R. Myers would call edgy prose. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I essentially agree with both of you. I, I was, for the first third of it, somehow vulnerable to whatever charms it possesses. I actually thought I was starting to read a good and accomplished novel. And and for the really the simplest reason, which is that I found I found the dissolution of the marriage in the face of the disappeared child actually somewhat gripping, and I wanted to know what happened to him, and I wanted to know what happened to them. But as it went along, I found the details brought it into the realm of the overly familiar. For example, mm-hmm. the fact that the mother's an ex-chorus girl. Mm-hmm. And then he starts to overpopulate the book with um, ancillary and secondary <laughs> and tertiary characters. I actually found the Bing story somewhat interesting for exactly the reasons you alluded to, the sort of Shabin-esque use of the degradations of pop culture. And we should say that Newell, the son, who is he 11? He's 12. He's 12. Okay, so he's sort of adolescent, pre-adolescent. He goes out uh, on the night that 
forms the main action of the book, which is the, the sort of events leading up to his disappearance, you know, sometime after midnight on the specific night. He goes out with a slightly older friend named Kenny. And Kenny is a very interesting character. And I thought what was interesting about him overlapped with what, what had interested me about Bing, which is that there's a sense that torqued just right, these people are salvageable as human beings and possibly even as artists. Kenny is an aspiring young comic book artist who routinely goes to see these sort of pathetic but slightly achieved comic book artists at conventions and always is on the verge of walking up to them and showing him his work, which we're led in no uncertain terms to believe in the book, you know, by, by, by Bach, are actually quite remarkable, or at least in some latent way, point to a sensitivity, a peculiar sensitivity and talent. And he never quite is able to walk up to these artists. And I, I actually found the story of that missed connection between Bing, who's this sort of pathetic fat kid in a cape, you know, who fancies himself a Lothario, but is really just a lonely masturbator, and, and this young kid, uh, Kenny, who is completely sexually confused and isolated and aggressive and, and sort of, you know, sort of victimized by the same pop culture that exalts him. You know, I felt like the bringing together of these two represented a real possibility in the novel in the same way, kind of a reuniting of the parents with their child and the other story did. And when those stories disappeared and instead all of these sort of secondary and tertiary characters came in like Sherry Blossom, the stripper and Pony Boy, her sort of over-muscled, tattooed, irresponsible boyfriend. And we lost that thread. I thought the human interest died from it. And it went from being a style that reminded me in a distant, very distant way of Dickens and a slightly less distant way of DeLillo to a style that reminded me of Rick Moody. And at that point, I'm afraid one pushes the eject button on any aesthetic enterprise. Well, I agree. I mean, I also think the central conceit walks the line between clever and gimmicky in Mm -hmm. a way that really characterizes the book. And namely, the idea of this 11-year-old kid who feels so invisible that he actually disappears and that he literally disappears is so interesting, so clever, could be so great, and yet fundamentally disappears into the gimmickiness that it could also be. And that this book, um, for me, kind of walks that line a lot of the way through or at least for part of the way through, as you say, it starts out as a really compelling novel. And I even think the parents' reaction to his disappearance and how it affects their marriage was interesting to me. Um, you know, and, and as soon as it just becomes, it does become a cartoon or a comic book um, mm-hmm. very quickly. Yeah. Uh, but in the beginning, I felt like you were turning the page as you would a really good novel. Do you think, Katie, that that's that that itself is a function of a gimmick and that we know from the first few pages that Newell has disappeared, but we have to, it's structured such that we have to keep going simply to satisfy our desire to know why and how? Yes, sort of. Yeah, it's very gimmicky, right? That's what I mean. I mean, it, as I say... But in a good something... novel, would sorry to interrupt, but in a good novel, would you perceive that as a gimmick, though? I mean, it's it's no. we have an idea that a, that a kind of tantalizingly plotted novel has to be somehow lower middle brow. It's like it's going to, it's a literal expression of this um, state. You know, it's like a Kafka metamorphosis moment where there's a literal expression of this alienated kid and feeling invisible and actually disappearing. To me, that seemed like it could be really interesting and elevated and be uh, sort of borne out on a very high level, which it isn't in the end. So it promises something at the beginning that I think it can't quite deliver. I'll buy that. <laughs> <laughs> Troy, why don't we uh, take a, a look at some of the places where your disenchantment with the book might have set in? If you want to just read a couple of passages and tell us what page they're on. 
You just mentioned uh, a, a secondary character named. Uh, do I want to call her Cherry Blossom or Sherry Blossom? Yeah, I, do you, I, I don't do know which think? way to go with it. I would go I, with. I think Katie. Katie, you're sort of my guru, guru on all pornographic matters. Could you, <laughs> could you set me straight? Is she I Sherry or Cherry? Her, I think we would call her Cherry. Okay, we want to harden you? but not soften the pun, yeah, so to I speak. Think so. Okay. My discontent with the novel really set in on uh, page one ten. This is a novel that's very sex focused, and more power to it for that. In any event, uh, as Steve mentioned. Uh, is a character, Sherry Blossom, uh, a stripper, and here we see her at work. Sherry Blossom planted one of her stilettos on each side of the newcomer's prematurely balding skull and lowered herself into a squat that was not quite pronounced enough to pee from. Uh, <laughs> he continues. Uh, and he continues there um, sort of discussing uh, that Sherry watched as his mind literally receded into the world of private and carnal awe that men retreated into when women like her straddled them. No biggie. She'd been at the game long enough that controlling a man was, as a process, about the same to her as cutting away the mealy part of an apple that had been left on top of the fridge overnight. Actually, it was more like when the sun was easing its way over the Sierra Nevadas and a night of shaking her moneymaker was behind Sherry. Like when she worked the final locks of her condo and opened the door and, lo and behold, her boyfriend was cooking the final foils of her stash. There are a number of problems here. Uh, One is uh, of characterization that times we're told that Miss Blossom has uh, devoted a lot of energy to her upkeep with her uh, personal trainer and with her nutritionist, Uh, and yet there are these hints throughout that she's got a serious drug problem that would seem to be at odds with her interest in personal maintenance. This is not to mention, uh, by the way, a scene that recounts um, the story of Miss Blossom uh, having her breast augmented, which ridiculously seems to occur at the end of a mushroom trip and without any prior consultation with a physician. (laughs) Uh, But, 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 um, what concerns me more, and this in a novel with hundreds of meaningless phrases, is uh, this figure of speech Controlling a man was, as a process, about the same to her as cutting away the mealy part of an apple that had been left on top of the fridge overnight. What does that mean? Does that phrase evoke anything for you? Does it increase your understanding? This raises, I think, another issue, which is to what extent do we grade inflate for the fact that it's a first novel? I mean, I think on the one hand, it is a first book. I think for a first book, as everyone's acknowledged, it's, it's you know accomplished first novel. On the other hand, you know, he's not young. He's not 23 years old. He's 38. He took 11 years to write it. And it's been accompanied by really, I would say, an unordinary amount of hype. So it's, it's sort of hard to know. I, I, it does seem to me that when the writing is controlled, the book is significantly better. But he wanted to write a big book and a long book and a book with a lot of characters. And in the course of his 11 years, there are certain passages and chapters and storylines and subplots that he really seems to have lost control of. And as Troy points out, at the level of the image, very often there's just a kind of sort of yeah, slovenliness. Yeah. yeah. I also think in terms of the number of characters, there's a problem. Um, when he goes into all the runaways. Yeah, that's... And there's all kinds of different homeless runaways and the girl with the shaved head and then the pregnant homeless runaway. And yeah. They all start to blur together. And more importantly, I think even – I agree with you that that's alarming where he loses control of the image. But he also loses control of his – attitude toward these characters is he satirizing these kind of silly homeless teens or is he kind of 
turning them into these rebels and heroes, and it becomes a little unclear. Mm -hmm. And I think it would have been a, a more interesting book if he were satirizing them. And I think in the end, and as you say, I mean, that's in a way one of the ambiguities of the passage you read too. Where is the author in position mm -hmm. to this stripper? Is he sort of celebrating her? It kind of seems like right, it and is. it should just to, to sort you know, of fill in some yeah, fill in some details. She is in some way the heroine. I mean, sort of everyone in the book seems to have been vouchsafed their God-given quotient of humanity, and they go set about either degrading it or being degraded, so they lose it in a variety of ways. She especially, this is an especially pronounced feature of her character because she imagines herself in a, in a film where she's writing a screenplay in her right. head in which she <laughs> imagines herself as someone whose innocence might have been preserved and why it wasn't, and she's in a dialogue with which a Which is one of the silliest parts of the book, too. Terrible. Right? It's not... Where, he, where he, she's imagining herself in a movie. It's just too yeah. overdone and... Yeah, um... and the more he makes her seem intelligent and promising and humane, the less credible it seems that she's doing what she's doing or even if she were doing what she was doing because it's the most monetizable asset in her life the fact that she's with this guy because pony boy has a moment of heroism towards the end of the book but leading up to it he's just a complete reprobate i mean there's reprobate i mean there's nothing about this person that makes you think that this woman would stay with him you know if she were using his drugs maybe but he's using hers and troy i'm surprised to find you've never woken up with a, from a mushroom binge with breasts that's never happened to you <laughs> well it was but i got them removed <laughs> i will add though that the uh we're talking about sherry blossom imagining herself in the film it, that is of a piece with a uh, sort of a running theme that's going in the the first scene of the book finds uh is about Lincoln and Lorraine capturing uh, on videotape uh, a scene of Newell at a uh, sort of a, at a pizza party, perhaps after a little league uh, baseball game, capturing an image in order to give to the authorities so that he can be found. Later in the book, Lincoln spends a lot of time drowning his sorrows in pornography and fast forwarding to particular scenes and in tapes that he buys. And I'm not certain what Charles Bach is onto here what he thinks he's onto, but it does occur, it does happen that on, also early in the novel, on page three, he uh, trots out the old saw about uh, native peoples and uh, their beliefs about photography. Quote, uh, supposedly when photography was invented, they believed each picture from the white man's magic machine removed a piece of the subject's soul, which is familiar, and it, it's a familiar idea. It's still an idea. I don't know if it's an idea worthy of a novel that exceeds 400 pages. Yeah, I agree with that. And also what saddened me about that kind of lapse in taste is that I actually found the presence of this videotape as their, the couple's one enduring connection to their missing son, an object of genuine pity in sort of the Aristotelian sense. Like I really was an effective kind of part of the book for me. But this raises another question, which is there's an awful lot of, as you say, sex in the book. There's also an enormous amount of violence. There's a sense that there's an ambient sense of degradation that's so pervasive that we lose sight of these people as people after a certain point. Is the flip side of that, you know, it's it's often sold as an act of aesthetic courage to write a book like this. Is the flip side of that or is the fine line that is there a fine line separating that kind of attraction to squalor from just absolute sentimentality? I mean, I found this style, just say, I found it a, a deeply sentimental book. Yeah, I agree. And I mean, well, we've talked about Tree of Smoke and Dennis Johnson, who I think does a much 
better job of investigating that kind of degradation, mm -hmm. the, this sort of certain kind of American nihilism in a much more sophisticated way. And yeah. to me, this is sort of an ersatz version of that kind of writing. Um, and what makes it feel, you know, in a way it's sort of fashion, style. It doesn't seem to transcend a superficial level. I wouldn't mind that kind of investigation of violence or, you know, Cormac McCarthy mm -hmm. or any number of writers that we can think of who, in a deeper way, take on that subject. But here it just feels shallow. Mm -hmm. it, it feels quite often designed simply to shock, much on the level of the uh, body piercings of the characters. That yeah, or like an American apparel ad or something, you know. Yeah, or like Larry Clark's movies. There's the, the other problem I had with it is just this utter familiarity. It seems to me it's a genre, and it's a pretty well it's a pretty well-mined genre at this point. I mean, the Larry Clark movies, and I'm sure there are half a dozen others. I didn't feel as though I was being introduced to something entirely new. And, and in that sense, I think Bach didn't do justice to the huge virtue that he brings to the book, which was his <coughs> own life experience as the child of the pawnbrokers. And I actually thought some of the pawnbroker material was quite good, and it seemed to come out of direct experience, and it was a very honest reckoning with kind of the sadness and desperation of Las Vegas. But um, when I say sentimentality, what I mean is there's this kind of deeply sentimental and highly invested notion about people as, as potentially good, but they're somehow ruined by entirely arbitrary circumstances. And if only we could rescue them, there's this sense of like, if we could rescue, if we could rescue, if we could rescue. And and just so underneath the luridness for me was a kind of, I don't know, sort of after school special quality over concern for you and very, one should say, utterly humorless book. I mean, I, I, if you yeah. really want to get at the root of what's wrong with this book, if it had had a tiny dram of humor, it might have leavened itself and turned to something well, else. I think the other problem is there's always a fine line with books about adolescence mm -hmm. where, and the adolescent exploration of the adolescent sensibility, which he does very well. He's obviously still at age 38. They say in America, adolescence lasts till 28. Maybe it's 38. Oh, it's complete. Um, 28? You're just getting going at 28. <laughs> Katie, please. Right. All right. So our adolescence lasts till 38. But one of the things about the adolescent sensibility here is that inability to to have any ironic view of oneself. Yeah. And so There's that's a kind what of I mean small bore. Sort of, yeah, a small yeah. bore irony, which Newell has, which actually is – sort of well done, the way right. he just sasses his parents in this, like, caustic and almost hateful way constantly uh -huh. is actually quite real, I think. Right, I think but so, But there's too. no lar large irony is right. what you're saying. Right, and he's yeah. unable to, once he gets into this world of these adolescent runaways, he just can't look beyond it. He can't bring an adult perspective, an adult satire, an adult way of looking at this, which in the end makes the book dissolve into a kind of uninterestingness, I think. And it is the difference between presenting this adolescent sensibility really well, which he does, and actually just getting lost in it. Getting which lost in it. I think ultimately he finally, he finally does get lost. Um, I have a question. I'll throw it out there. I've noticed recently that comics are becoming this subject. I mean, you pointed to Michael Shaben, I think also Jonathan Lethem. Those are the two big examples. But I'm, I'm, I think I'm forgetting a couple of others. But there's this sort of newfangled highbrow reckoning with comics as – this thing that the, like, male American writer encountered. There's no established canon of literacy in America, so as young adolescents were vulnerable to pop culture and the kind of sensitive kid might find an outlet in, you know, Spider-Man more than in Shakespeare or Keats in America. And they're sort of reckoning with this as their own literary past and trying to 
bring it to serious novels as, as an object of central concern. Am I picking up on a trend or am I just sort of staring at my own navel here? I see you both look like you don't want to answer the question. <laughs> oh, no, it's certainly a trend. I'm, I'm just sitting here. Do we make anything of it? What does it all mean? What does it all mean, Troy? Well, I think maybe it partly has to do with the uh, increasing extension of adolescence in America, that, that it partly has to do with the increasing legitimacy of the comics. Uh, now I've, I've started to wonder if if uh, postmodern uh, novelists or frustrated critics, allegedly, uh, maybe maybe uh, the new post the post postmodern novelist <laughs> is a frustrated cartoonist. <laughs> Wants the red graphic novel well, and sell it to I Hollywood. Feel for, like, I also feel like there's some them. aspect of this that's self-referential. Yeah. That in some sense, is Bach trying to be Jonathan Lethem? Is he trying to be Michael Chabin? I, I would guess yes, a mm-hmm. little bit. One of the problems with this hyper-realism, as James Wood called it, is, is that kind of imitation yeah, of Hysterical style. realism. Hysterical yeah, realism, yeah. right. Is the imitation of style. Is the idea that... In a way, these books are too much the same, mm-hmm. and the sameness is coming out of a kind of imitation of a sensibility. Or, um, yeah, and I'm not sure whether it's, you know, in this book feels that uh, it doesn't feel like the realist part of the book. Right. I mean, the, I'm not a fan of his work, but there is a way in which Quentin Tarantino is repeatedly telling you that I, my own experience, is so incredibly limited. I'm a child of the middle class. I'm a video store clerk. What I did when I was young was I watched a million hours of kung fu movies, and out of this experience, I fabricate this kind of ridiculous self-referential pastiche. It's certainly not what's going on in this book. There's a, there's an allusion to that sensibility in the form, in the person of a couple of the characters, but the book itself doesn't accomplish that. The book is supposed to be showing you something real. I take it, Katie, you're sort of saying, but we never feel as though it achieves that reality. In fact, what it is is sort of a genre piece that doesn't get beyond its own sort of aesthetic. I think so. Yeah. Or uh, to put it another way, to answer Stephen's question with another question, I wonder if this interest in comic novels has to do with a certain school of brainy boy novelist sort of feeling that um, the old novel is at an end and needing a new way to go. Um, you, you mentioned Don DeLillo earlier, and it put me in the mind of... Um, this is another quote from earlier in the book. Bing. <coughs> what, uh, what page are we on? We're on page 26, and uh, Bing is thinking at once about uh, Columbine and about the World Trade Center. And uh, he uh, starts thinking about, uh, well, it's a quote now, a line that never failed to lead Bing back to something he'd read in one of his favorite novels. Beckett is the last major writer to shape the way we think and see after him. The major works involve mid-air explosions and crumbling buildings. This is the new tragic narrative. That's Mao too, I think. Mm-hmm. And I wonder what its um, very deliberate placement here has to say about intent and anxiety of influence and whatever else. Yeah, I think that's what it's certainly pointing to. Why don't we sort of move towards our wrap-up here? Katie, I know there was something you wanted to read in the acknowledgments. which no, I- We should say that you get to the end of this book... I found it enormously anticlimactic, though, Troy, I pick up from you some sort of low-throttle possible defense of the end of the book is better than the middle and the beginning. Uh, I think that there's a bit more clarity and lightness, uh, mm-hmm. or perhaps I just grown fatigued. With <laughs> your own critical mind. <laughs> with my own critical mind. And, uh, you know, I've been, I've been slagging on this book, and th- there are 
a, a number of commendable things about it. I, you know, what sticks with me is uh, there's a passage where uh, Kenny drawing becomes absorbed in his work mm-hmm. that, uh, that feels honest and true. Yeah. Uh, as Stephen mentioned, there's Kenny and uh, an older female relative, his grandmother maybe. There's uh, some scenes early on uh, where uh, that are about her sort of habitual, regular monthly visits to a pawn shop. That her aunt, I think it's his aunt. aunt. Yeah. Those feel, those seem really felt and true, and I would have loved to read a novella about this woman and her experience. Uh, exactly, yeah. All that said, yeah, the um, I'm less bugged by the ending than either of you. <laughs> <laughs> Katie, were you bothered by the ending? Yeah, I, as I say, I think that it got very diffuse and that he starts to celebrate all these runaways in a way that just seems silly to me. Yeah. And that they blend together and they're all in the desert and some music is playing and it becomes it just to me the plot diffuses Mm -hmm. uh and i just didn't i i couldn't get involved in the ending but the reason i was interested in the author's note and the acknowledgments which are quite extensive we should say and i'm not going to read the whole thing is that if there's any ambiguity about Bach and his intentions, they are sort of resolved in the author's note and acknowledgement. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and that we really see who he is kind of clearly. I and agree. it sheds light on the book. Katie, itself. I am, we, this, this is the this most is like we've our, ever I'm been in agreement. We should bronze this moment, put it away, and never encounter each other ever again. It's, it's true. <laughs> we really have. We really agree. But anyway, I think so. I'm just going to read a little bit and then we can talk about what it means. First of all, in the author's note, as Troy was pointing out, He says, I tried to be fairly accurate in the placement of hotel streets et al. in my hometown of Las Vegas, Nevada. I was not always successful. In part, this is because Las Vegas is a fluid city, and it took me a long time to write this novel, and by the time I was finished, things changed. Then he says, contact me. Wait, Vegas of files are more than welcome to search the book for discrepancies between the real thing and what I came up with. Contact me about them, and maybe I'll send you something depending on my mood. All right. Then in the the acknowledgments, he does acknowledge... Here we get a little sense of his smugness. Um, Certain people in the world of adult entertainment were kind enough to take me into their clubs and onto their sets. You know who you are. A heartfelt thanks for letting me into your lives. Loving thanks to all the street kids I talked to and to all the ones I didn't get a chance to talk to and to all the ones who haven't yet run. May there be nothing but peace in your futures. Everyone at Random House has been amazing, and I'm so grateful that they believed in my novel. Gracias, my ruthless corporate overlords. In particular, the support of Gina Centrello has been priceless. My thanks to her without end. Dana Blanchett worked very hard to make every page of this book a piece of art. Oops. Lynn Buckley is the genius who designed that once-in-a-lifetime cover. Mm. Um, And on and on and on. Uh, and then in the resources at the end of the book, where I think, which is also very this, revealing. This was the absolute clincher for me. Yeah, absolute yeah. clincher. If you, it's called resources. If you are out on the streets or a parent of a missing teen, here are a few places to get help. National Runaway Switchboard, blah, 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 gives it address. National Nevada Partnership for Homeless Youth, et cetera, et cetera. Should you happen to be driving in Las Vegas when you need to fuel up or get a soda, may I suggest Terrible Herbst. They are a partner with the Nevada Partnership for Homeless Youth, and their stores and gas stations can serve as places where runaways can go for shelter and get a bite. In addition, please know I'm not affiliated with any of the organizations on this list and did not write my novel while in contact with these organizations. 
However, if you or your teen is in trouble, there are excellent local resources all over the nation. Please find them. And if you want your organization to be part of this list, contact my website, www.beautifulchildren.net. We'll confirm your info and include it in subsequent editions to the novel. Good luck to all. Yeah, now what I'm curious about is what, what was it about this? We, you and I both have this powerful intuition that this somehow gives the game away completely for the novel. But the question is why? Because in nor- normal circumstances, it should be said, a novel should stand alone, it, it, utterly regardless of what someone says in the acknowledgments. You shouldn't pay attention to that at all. And yet in this instance, there's a kind of persistent doubt about the novel that resolves itself in the negative when you read this, at least for me. But what is that, Katie? Like flesh it out. Why? Okay. I think um, in part there's a – it's the pretentiousness of pretending that this novel is like some sort of social act. Yeah. That he's writing it for all you homeless teens out there. Yeah. When in fact – that part of the book was so artificial mm-hmm. and was so, like, glorified and didn't feel like he spent any time at all. <laughs> Suddenly he makes it seem like he's writing this, this book is going to be read by homeless uh-huh. teens and they're going to read it and be like, oh, I'm going to go to that shelter. Here's the number. <laughs> and it's so obviously not true yeah. that it becomes a performance and it is a piece of the book. And he's putting it in there to show how serious he is, how this is yeah. like this social act of, you know, um, where he's trying to benefit mankind. And, there's, I mean, he obviously cannot possibly believe that this book is really going to help the homeless teens out there who are sitting on their park benches reading their $25 hardcover. He just can't be believing that. I'm so completely with you, and I apologize for all the times we've ever fought, Katie. It was, <laughs> it was, I was in the wrong. Troy, what do you make of this? Does it, did it bother you as much as it bothered us? Well, first I would point out that uh, in the uh, acknowledgments, both Slash and W. Axel Rose get uh, <laughs> checked as well. Second, I wonder if we'll ever see uh, an edition of Portnoy's Complaint with an endnote uh, telling you how you, you know, <laughs> might get involved in Sexaholics Anonymous. <laughs> um, it's, uh, yes, it, it, it is fair game for, for uh, criticism. It shows how seriously he takes himself. Like, if we were thinking he didn't take himself totally yeah. seriously, I mean, I think that's where why the acknowledgments actually seem like a piece of this puzzle. I'm with you, yeah. Because it shows that all of these ways in which you think maybe he's almost on the border of making fun of something, he's actually not really making fun of it. It just isn't. It brings home that the dominant note of the novel is self-seriousness, and that's really lethal to it. It's it's less smugness, lack of humor, and self-importance of the social act. And that's, that's deadly to a novel, I think. Well, I think we can wrap it there. Troy, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Total pleasure. Katie? Thank you. And thanks for being gentle. (laughs) (laughs) And for those of you who would like to contact Onanists Anonymous, please dial (laughs) 1-800. For Slate's Audiobook Club, I'm Stephen Metcalf. We'll see you soon. Next month, the Audiobook Club will discuss Richard Peviar and Larissa Volokonsky's translation of Leo Tolstoy's classic novel, Anna Karenina. We'll post that discussion in mid-May. If you have any comments about the Audiobook Club, send them to podcasts at slate.com. For slate.com, I'm June Thomas.